This is a Sunday Talk by Tom McFarlane and Damian Pierce, titled The Great Quantum Debate, recorded November 17th, 2002, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So this morning we're going to be talking about quantum physics and two of its major interpretations. And the basic structure for the talk will be, first I'm going to give a, a short preliminary presentation of some of the basic concepts of quantum physics that we'll need in order to uh, discuss the two interpretations. And then Damien will present uh, one interpretation of quantum physics, and I'll give a little rebuttal, and then I'll present another interpretation, and he'll give a little rebuttal, and then we'll open it up for discussion. So, first of all, some basic concepts about quantum physics. There are two important things to understand, first of all. One is that, like all uh, theories in physics, there's a basic equation. And as Joel mentioned, in quantum physics, it's the Schrodinger equation. And what this equation does is it describes how the state of the world evolves through time. So it's really basically uh, a simple idea. For example, if you have a bank account, the state of your bank account is how much money is in your account, the balance. And there's a simple equation to describe how that will evolve, assuming you don't uh, take any money out, there, and it's compounding interest. There's a formula that will tell you how the, uh, the amount of money in your bank will increase over time. And if you withdraw all the money or check the balance in any case, uh, the formula will tell you how much money will be there. And so you have the state of the account today, and the state of the account a few years down the road, maybe when you retire, and you hope it's greater, and the formula assures you that indeed it will be. And so this is more or less how the laws of physics work. We describe the state of the world right now, and then the equation, the law of physics, tells us how that state will change through time, and then we can uh, make predictions and make a measurement and compare it to what the theory uh, said the state will be in the future, and sure enough, it matches, and we have confidence in the theory. Now, in Newton's uh, theory of the universe, the state was described by the positions of particles and their velocities. And the equation, Newton's law, described how these uh, positions and velocities moved through time. So you could imagine uh, we might have a box. There's a, a box sitting right here uh, under the microphone, actually. And you could imagine that there's a hole on the side of this box, and I throw a, a small little particle in there. Let's say just a piece of dust or something that's able to float around. And uh, so it has an initial position, which is the hole in the side of the box, and it has a little velocity, the velocity with which it was tossed in there. And if you then apply the Newton's law to that uh, initial state of the particle, it will describe its exact trajectory inside that box. It'll move over here, it'll go over there, it'll do these various things. So that if I open up the box again and look inside and compare it to the state that uh, is described for the future, sure enough, it'll be right there. So there's two things about this that are important to note in the classical case of Newton's law. One is that the law predicts a definite position, a definite state for that. If I look in there, it says it's going to be right here. It's actually going to be here. There's no uh, kind of fuzziness about it. The other thing is, is that it describes a continuous 
change of the position. So it's not like Newton's law will say, well, it'll be here, and then suddenly it'll jump over there, and then it might be over there and over here. No, it follows <clears throat> like a continuous path. If it's here in one moment, in the very next instant, it'll be somewhere very close by, and it'll sort of smoothly move around inside the box. And this conforms more or less to our experience of the world. We look up in the sky, we see the sun. If it's uh, almost at its height, as it would be about now, then if we go out five minutes later, it's not going to be setting. It's still going to be more or less uh, near where it is. And so there's a, a continuous movement of the sun across the sky. And that's how the, uh, the equations of classical physics describe the evolution of the state. It's a definite state, a definite position, and it moves continuously. Okay, now quantum physics. The law of quantum physics, Schrodinger's equation, is very similar to Newton's equation in that there's this continuity. If you describe a state of a system at one moment in time, it continuously changes to future moments in time. There's no <clears throat> sudden jumps according to this equation. However, the state of the system is very unusual. Instead of uh, being a particular position of a particle, for example, it describes a wave. And a wave is different from a particle in an important respect, and that is that it's not uh, a localized thing. It's spread out, like waves are. So the, the image here would be that if you uh, walk out into, uh, let's say, a park in the early morning hours, and the air is very calm, and there's a pool there, a small pond that's just perfectly smooth. It's like glass. And you have a, a marble in your pocket. And you take this marble and you throw it into this pond, and it goes plop. And then the marble disappears, and these ripples start spreading out across the surface of this perfectly smooth pond. And this is what happens in quantum physics, is that the state isn't a definite position of that marble. It's su suddenly the marble disappears, the particle disappears, and there's just these, these ripples. It's described as this wave, and the wave is everywhere. It's not, you can't say, well, the wave is in this part of the pond and not over there. The wave spreads out across the whole pond. Now, the interesting thing and the really weird thing that gets us into trouble with quantum physics isn't that this is a wave, because there are waves in classical physics just like the wave on the pond. That's a perfectly classical phenomenon. The interesting thing about quantum physics is that this isn't a physical wave. It's a wave of probability. So what happens is this marble disappears, and what it's replaced by, what the Schrodinger equation describes its state as being, is a wave of probability spreading through space. And so this isn't an actual position of the marble, but a probability for the marble to have a position. And so it's saying, you might say, the, the marble has a potential to exist in various places, but it doesn't actually exist anywhere. So let's go back to this box. If I were to take a small particle, and toss it through that hole again. And this time, if I describe it using quantum physics, 
Instead of following a definite trajectory throughout this box, and then me opening it up and seeing it exactly where the Newton's law will describe it to be, if I describe that with quantum physics, I take the little particle, I put it through the hole, and its state, according to quantum physics, sort of dissolves and spreads throughout the whole box to sort of encompass the entire interior of the box. And so there's no longer a definite position of a particle anywhere in that box. It's, you might say, the box is permeated by a probability. There's a certain probability to find it over in one corner, another probability of finding it in this corner, and that probability is changing, shifting around, according to this law, the Schrodinger equation. It's shifting around kind of like how those ripples in the pond are moving around on the surface. <clears throat> and so these waves of probability are going around in there, and there's no definite position of that particle at all. This, however, doesn't correspond at all with our experience of the world. If, if I open this box, I'm not going to see some mysterious wave of probability shifting around inside the box. I'm going to see a definite position for that particle. And this brings us to the real paradox of quantum physics, which is the measurement paradox. The laws of quantum physics describe the world as existing in terms of this potential, this probability of things being observed in certain places. But what we actually see when we observe the world isn't some potential spread out over space. We see a definite position of a particle. So in the analogy of the pond, it would be something like we throw the marble in the pond, the marble disappears, these ripples start going out across the surface. And this happens when we're not really examining the pond. This is when it's sort of unobserved. And then let's say we go look at this pond for, well, where did the marble go? And then all of a sudden, poof, it like shoots out of the water in one spot, and the whole lake turns still again. The whole pond is suddenly still. Because remember, the ripples describe the probability that the marble will be in a particular place. So if I actually look and see the marble in one place, well, that means the probability that it's anywhere else must suddenly be zero. Because if I'm seeing it here, the probability that it's anywhere else is zero. So I see it here, and the whole pond suddenly becomes flat. And the problem with this is that the Schrodinger equation that describes the evolution of these waves, how they ripple around on the pond, is, as I said before, a continuous uh, evolution of the waves. The waves don't suddenly jerk in one way or the other, but this is evidently what has to happen in order for there to be an observation of something. Suddenly, the probability has to go And this is called the collapse of the wave function. The wave function is just the physicist term for this wave of probability that's everywhere. And because it suddenly is reduced to zero everywhere and, uh, and has a value of one, probability, certainty of seeing it in one place, they call this kind of a collapse. Everything everywhere collapses down to zero, and then it's uh, localized in one place. So this is really the heart of the measurement problem. And physicists have basically debated for... Well, over 75 years now, 
uh, how to understand this, how to resolve this paradox. And the, I guess I would say the, the widely accepted interpretation was more or less just a pragmatic kind of attitude, which often goes by the term the Copenhagen interpretation because it was first put forth by Niels Bohr, uh, who was based in Copenhagen and his school of people. And it's basically the attitude of, well, we observe things in definite places, so somehow this collapse must happen. We don't understand what it is. We don't understand where it happens. We don't understand how it happens. We don't understand when it happens. But somehow it happens. So we accept this in order to make a connection between the theory, what it says about the world, and our experience, which is manifestly definite. We observe things definitely here or there, not as some spread out probability. So we have to accept that there's this connection somehow. We don't understand it, but let's accept it. And some people actually added to the theory uh, another postulate or assumption called the projection postulate that actually takes care of this collapse. But it's kind of this ad hoc thing that they throw in in order to make this connection between what the theory says and what we experience. And this extra postulate actually violates the Schrodinger equation. It doesn't... Uh, it's a discontinuous collapse that uh, isn't accounted for by the basic law of physics itself. And so this is one of the reasons why it's unsatisfactory to a lot of people and why they have struggled with trying to understand what's really going on during measurement and how we are to reconcile the fact that on the one hand, quantum mechanics describes the world as uh, this non-local wave of probability that doesn't have the property of uh, describing a definite actual world. It just <coughs> describes probabilities for things to happen. On the other hand, our experience says that something happens. We observe it here or we observe it there. We don't observe some weird combination of things, the way quantum mechanics describes it. And so there's this tension between these two. And the measurement problem is trying to resolve that tension, that paradox. So with that, I'll turn it over to Damien, and he'll describe one of the proposed solutions to this quandary that quantum physics has gotten us into. Thanks. So I'm going to describe what's known as the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And this is, a, a, to me, the most, the most elegant solution to this problem that Tom just told us about. And the way it works is basically... You've got this thing called the wave function, right, which Tom was describing as this wave of probability for, let's say, a particle to be someplace. Or it could be any property of a particle or any property of a collection of particles, and ultimately it's, it's, there's the wave function of the universe, which is describing all of this. So, you know, it's, it's the wave function uh, idea applies to all scales from a single particle to the whole universe. Um, and all properties of, of everything too. So it, it really includes encompasses everything. In any case, you you've got this wave function, no matter what it is that it's describing, and all the many worlds interpretation does is says, let's let's just take it at face value. What this that this wave function is the actual description of the thing, the particle. Let's say that means it's no longer just a probability it actually is describing the actual object. It's actually 
this, it actually is the object. The wave function and the object are not two different things. That was the problem we got into. That was why we had this paradox. We had this wave function, which we said was probability, and then we had what we actually observed, which was an actual definite thing, an actual definite object someplace. But now, many world says, let's just forget that. We don't have two different things. We've got one thing. We've got the wave function, and it is the object. So what does that imply? What that implies is that, just as Tom was describing, if you put the particle in the box, and it starts to evolve, and it starts to sort of be everywhere, since, I, since, since now the proposal is that this wave function is the description of the object, the object, in some sense, exists everywhere. And what happens when we observe it is the observer, let's say you open the box and you look, at that moment, the experience of the, of the observer is a definite particle someplace, but that is actually happening for every possible place of that particle. So what that means is that the, the world, if you will, or the experiencer, experiences a particle at every possible place, all of those experiences are actually experienced. So the entire world is now split into all these different worlds, each of which is the experience of the particle at one place or another. The key element in this many worlds theory, or the, the, the key ingredient that makes it feasible, that makes it a reasonable interpretation, has to do with, with the splitting of worlds and why it is that we seem to only experience a single world. How could it be that right now, in this very room, there are, this very world that we're experiencing now is actually splitting moment by moment into many, many different worlds, each with their own trajectories and own futures, and each of those continues to split, and so on, just like a tree with a root, and it branches out and continues to branch out into all these possible futures, right? All the possible futures are actually happening now, why is it that we're only experiencing this one world? That's the fundamental question that the many worlds proponents have to resolve. And the way they resolve it basically has to do with the difference between a quantum system with very few degrees of freedom in which all kinds of overlap is possible and interactions with, with systems with many, many degrees of freedom where as soon as some process happens, some irreversible process a lot of those degrees of freedom are altered in such a way that in one branch of the wave function, they're altered, let's say, um, millions of particles are, are all uh, being affected by the spin-up measurement in one way, and in the other detector, or in the sort of the split-off branch of, of the wave function, they're all being affected in a spin-down measurement way. Those two completely different states of the detector can never overlap. They can never interfere. They can never know about each other. So those two worlds are essentially uh, what's called decohered. There's this decoherence process happening. So as the splitting is happening, simply because of large numbers of degrees of freedom, each time the wave function splits, those two branches can't interfere anymore. So it looks like a classical world in each branch. It looks like a definite thing in each branch. Each branch only knows about what it observes, so observers in a given branch only know about a certain result of the measurement. They don't know about the fact that there's this other world over there that has the opposite result.
So um, just to wrap it up then, the many worlds interpretation is the simplest and most elegant, <laughs> despite how it sounds, because simply because of this. It says, look, there's a wave function, and there's Schrodinger's equation, which describes the evolution of that wave function, and that's the whole theory. If you take that as your postulate for quantum mechanics, the inevitable result is, is many worlds. And it's a natural outcome of taking the very, very basic the very basic starting point for quantum mechanics, which is there's a wave function and there's a Schrodinger's equation which tell you how it, how it evolves, and you take that and you get many worlds. That's the result. So, of all the physicists I know who have an opinion about the interpretation of quantum mechanics, most well-respected physicists agree that many worlds is the most obvious, most elegant, most natural solution for this whole measurement problem. And uh, anyway, I hope hope you get a, at least a taste for what it for what it's saying. And and basically, what it's saying is everything that can possibly happen, does happen. The universe is exploring and experiencing all the possible realities. So, that's it. Go Berkeley! Stan Berkeley! You know, this kind of reminds me of... Uh, Back in Ptolemy's time, remember Ptolemy had this uh, vision of the universe where the earth was at rest in the center and all the planets and the sun and the moon and everything moved around the earth. And uh, in order to explain uh, the precise movements, people added these, these little, uh, what are called epicycles, which means a circle upon a circle. There's the main circle of the orbit, and then there's another circle to describe kind of deviations from that. And because everything was uh, obviously and most elegantly circles in their worldview, this was the most elegant and uh, obvious <laughs> view of the cosmos of all the respected physicists and philosophers of the day. <laughs> and, and this, you know, held on for quite a while, and people said, well, this is obviously the cycle. And then, well, then they discovered that you need extra little epicycles on the epicycles in order to... But that's, you know, it gets a little complicated, but still, it's the most elegant. It's all based on these simple circles and so on. <laughs> so the many worlds kind of reminds me of this, you know. Well, you know, we can't quite explain this world, so let's invent, you know, myriad other worlds to try and. I think we have enough problems with this world. <laughs> trying to explain this. Science's job is to explain this world, not a myriad of other worlds that we cannot even verify. This is another principle of science: is that you must be able to verify things. And the many worlds people want to have it both ways. You see, on the one hand, they say, these worlds can never interact with each other. Well, if that's the case, that means we can never interact with these other worlds. We can never verify their existence. It's unscientific to hypothesize things that you can never prove or disprove the existence of. So this is pure metaphysics and has no place in modern science. <laughs> Now, there are some other kind of more technical problems with this. Now, the, the process that Damien was describing called decoherence, I have no problems with this. This is a perfectly consistent mathematical process, and it's even been verified in, in laboratory experiments. It has to do with the fact that 
on a large scale, uh, these interferences between quantum phenomena um, get reduced to a very small level, to the point where they're hardly observable. Now, I say hardly observable because in order to say that they're not observable, you have to collapse the wave function. You can't just say, well, they get really small, and then they're zero. Because to just say, and then they're zero, it means that somehow you've, you've magically erased them. So, in other words, you can consistently argue with decoherence that these two uh, people that observe the particle with spin up or spin down, that they and their measurement apparatus and everything, uh, that the interference between the two gets smaller and smaller and smaller, but you can't actually say that they become zero, because that would violate Schrodinger's equation. And the whole point of the many worlds is to say that we just take the Schrodinger's equation, we don't add anything else to the theory, and what happens is these worlds start to split, they start to seem like different worlds, but there's always this connection between them. There's never a discontinuity, there's never a place where it says, bam, now the worlds are split. Before they were sort of together, they were merged, and then they started going apart. Well, at some point you have to say, well, either they're together or they're not. There has to be a point where you can say, well, the world split. And that point is basically a discontinuity. And there's no discontinuity in the Schrodinger equation. It's a continuous function. It describes a continuous evolution of worlds, or world, or wave function, whatever you want to call it. But there's no place in, in the equations where it suddenly comes along and says, oh, now there's a discontinuity. Now the worlds have actually split. And so, because the worlds never really split, it's still really one world, with all of these interferences, some of which become, admittedly, very small, but they're still there. And so you can never say that there's an actual splitting of worlds. And so it doesn't really explain the fundamental problem, which is to say that there's definiteness in an experience of a particle here, as opposed to there. <coughs> so the probability in our experience actually becomes zero for those other worlds. I you don't observe me over there. And according to many worlds, I actually am over there in some of those worlds. But you're observing me here, manifestly. So in order to reconcile this with, with our experience, we have to uh, admit that there is an actual definiteness to experience and somehow reconcile that with quantum physics, which doesn't admit any kind of real definiteness. There's this kind of sort of quasi-definiteness. Well, we can sort of say that this world kind of sees that, but it's not really disconnected from those other worlds. And <clears throat> this is a real problem that some of the proponents of this decoherence idea actually admit. They go on with their theories and they describe how the decoherence works, and that's all well and good. But then it comes to this point where they try and explain how it is that things actualize, how things actually become definite. And one of the physicists who has written quite extensively on the idea of decoherence is named Roland Omnes, and he has this book called Understanding Quantum Mechanics. And he says some interesting things here at the very end. I just want to read you a couple of sentences. He talks a bit about this idea of actualization in terms of objectification, how it is that things actually become objective or, or definite. 
And what he says is, there is no problem of, object, of objectification. Why? Because the relation between theory and physical reality is no part of a theory. The conditions of this relation must be added to the theory itself. And this is where the requirement of uniqueness enters. The uniqueness of measuring things definitely here or there. Well, what he's basically said, though, is that the theory itself, namely the Schrodinger equation, can't give us that definiteness. He's admitted it. It can't actually give us that. We have to add this to the theory. Well, what is this other than the, this projection postulate, this uh, collapse of the wave function? It's something we add to the theory. And so this is the more or less the, the fact that is recognized by this opposing view of measurement, which I'll now describe, which basically says that, yes, there is a collapse of the wave function. Yes, something does happen uh, when a measurement is made. We, we have to admit that there's this, this, this kind of uh, categorical difference between probabilities and actualities. And let's, let's just face up to that fact that the theory itself can't tell us whether the world is definitely in one state or the other. Whether Karen Fairman is actually awake now or not. <laughs> so, <laughs> she's a good friend of mine. So, the interpretation of uh, collapse of the wave function, one way it, uh, it can be described is this. As Damien was saying, when, when a measurement device or a person looks at some quantum state that's in this weird combination of different probabilities, it kind of absorbs that probability and itself gets into these two states. So you might say, um, if there's this particle in the box, if I were to look into that box, then somehow if Damien were to describe me using quantum physics and the Schrodinger equation and put me in a box with this box, then I would be split. And I wouldn't get collapsed until he looked inside that box. And this, this leads to some paradoxes, admittedly. One of them was uh, pointed out by Schrodinger. He was one of the founders, well, the equation was named after him. And he said, you know, this, some of this stuff is crazy, and here's why. And he said, rather than uh, imagining the particle going into this box, let's put a little radioactive atom in there. And the, the weird thing about radioactive atoms is they have a probability of decaying, but there's no predictable way of saying exactly when that happens. So if I wait a few hours, let's say this atom is in the superposition, it has a probability of having decayed and it has a probability of not having decayed. And so it's in this strange space of uh, two things at the same time. And if we put a little detector there so that if it decays it will give off a little photon or something, and then the detector triggers a little hammer and a hammer breaks a little poison bottle and God forbid we put like a live animal, like a cat, inside the box. This was a thought experiment. He didn't really do this. It's simply to illustrate how uh, absurd this can become. Then 
the cat actually goes into this superposition of two states of being alive and being dead and according to quantum physics isn't resolved until I go in there and look but then we get back to this thing where well Damon could put me in a box right <laughs> and then I look in there and sure enough you know I think I see you know two different uh cats, or one cat, actually, either one way or the other. But according to Damien's description of this larger box, I'm actually split into these two uh, toms. And this is uh, a paradox called Wigner's friend. A physicist named Eugene Wigner realized that this can happen. And so he said, well, we have to say that the measurement happens at some point. And... The point at which it obviously happens is when we're conscious of something. I mean, I can say my brain's in a superposition, it's made up of atoms and stuff, but the buck has to stop somewhere, and we know it stops with consciousness. Things are one way or the other. We don't experience these two worlds at the same time. So his hypothesis was that consciousness is, you might say, where the buck stops with quantum physics. And consciousness is what accounts for the fact that this collapse happens. Now that's as far as Wigner went, but there's these paradoxes with that too. Um, I can, uh, if Damien describes me in this box now, since I'm a conscious being, right, when Damien describes this, he has to account for the fact that there's a conscious being in the box. And so he wouldn't actually describe me then, according to Wigner's version of this, as being in a superposition because I'm a conscious being. Well, then the problem, of course, is that Damien has this uh, problem of having to decide which entities in the world are conscious and which are not. So he knows how to quantum, quantum mechanically describe them. Well, let's see, did that, was that conscious? Did it collapse or not? No. Where do you exactly draw the line there? If uh, if it's a dog that's looking into the box at the cat, did, did that collapse? Well, what if it's a monkey? Well, what if it's a human? You know, where exactly do you draw the line there? What if it's a two-year-old? Can a two-year-old collapse the, the wave function? What about a one-year-old? What about a baby that was born a day ago? Where exactly do you draw the line there? What about a fetus that wasn't born? You know, what about the sperm and the egg? You know, where exactly do you draw the line there? Which Damien would have to decide where to draw the line on what constitutes a conscious observer and what doesn't. And so this paradox uh, kind of remained, and it was one of the criticisms of Wigner's version of the consciousness collapses. And then I believe the first one to, to uh, propose a resolution of this was a physicist named Amit Goswami, who some of you may have heard of. And he proposed that consciousness is not associated with particular individuals at all. This is, this is, a, this is a problem. Consciousness is actually transcendent, uh, universal. There's one consciousness, God, if you will. And this is the principle that accounts for the collapse of the wave function. And so that basically solves the problem because then Damien can allow me to go into this coherent superposition uh, 
because he's not actually the one that observes or doesn't observe. It's, it's actually God who does the observation. And so he doesn't have to decide who is and isn't God, basically. God makes these observations or not, and it's not up to Damien to decide who is and isn't uh, God. So that roughly is an overview of the, the perspective that the current state of the proposal that consciousness accounts for the collapse of the wave function. So I'll let Damien now respond to that. Well, first of all, let me defend my view. <laughs> For one thing you said was that there's no, that, uh, you know, this is philosophy, because, uh, you know, there's no way to, to actually uh, verify that these alternate worlds exist. And uh, the point is that, no, that, that this is not philosophy. This is actually a theory, you know. And theories have consequences, and you can verify them, or, or you can show that they're not true through experiment. And so, for example, to verify or to test whether the many worlds theories view or the sum collapse, I don't care how you do it, of the wave function is true. It's very simple. All you need to do is devise an experiment with a reversible measurement. And all that means is that you need a fine enough and small enough apparatus that there are very few degrees of freedom that get activated in that measurement that you can then reverse that process and you can basically undo everything that was done and in that undoing process you would restore the, let's say it was a, um, a particle that went through some half-silvered mirror, half mirrors and mirrors and interfered with itself. It would either restore itself in its, in its original state, if it was many worlds, because the many worlds would resolve back into that original particle, or because of this collapse that happened, when you, when you did the time reversal, it would not be in its, in its original state. Because that collapse is, is, singles out that a unique path for that particle and so on. So this is actually verifiable, and in fact, there are trend lines for, for our uh, development of artificial intelligence and uh, nanotechnology, which predict that we'll be able to do this measurement and actually verify which is correct by the year 2030. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to reconvene in 2030. <laughs> so everyone will know in the world which of these theories is true in, within our lifetimes, hopefully. Uh, so... Um, <laughs> Another point I like to make is, is, is uh, well, but no, then, now let's come over to, to your theory. Uh, <laughs> well, first of all, I, your theory is not really understandable. You can't, really, you can't write it down. You can't formulate anything. You can't like put God into your equations and say, now, now here's a theory. Uh, this is not a theory that makes predictions. This is simply philosophy if you will, that somehow it's trying to describe how is it that this wave function collapses? Well, God collapses it. Well, what is that? that is that more information? Is that useful? Is that... It's just, it's just philosophy, right? It's like just adding from... It's not even physics, you know. It's just... <laughs> it's, just it's just adding an idea to physics, right? It's like, it's like metaphysics. That's what it is. It's metaphor. <laughs> Whereas in, in, in the many world view, it, it's, it's actually physics from beginning to end. See, you've got this wave function. It evolves according to the Schrodinger equation. These worlds happen according to this decoherence process, which, as you admitted, is well understood and non-controversial. And there you have it. You've got this experience 
of all these different worlds, which, by the way, always will be interfering at some level. It doesn't go to zero. No one ever said that. <laughs> there is interference. It's very small. We can't measure it with our instruments. They're not fine enough. But someday we will be able to, as I said. So, um, so that's it. <laughs> So we've been going almost an hour now, so uh, maybe we could, I mean, I have a whole load of other things, of course, I could say, uh, <laughs> but uh, we, we could go on for hours and hours, and in fact, um, you know, at some point we might want to actually make this into a whole day affair, you know, to, to really get into the details of it. Uh, you really have to uh, take some more time because there are some some technical issues and some of them require a deeper understanding of some of the mathematical intricacies of quantum physics and so on. Um, we can't really get into those in this format, so um, you might want to stop at this point and maybe open up the discussion to the to the entire audience and uh, see what maybe people think about the two different views, if they have any questions about it. Hand one up in the back first, I think. Aren't you both kind of saying, kind of like a corollary to the first fundamental, that awareness creates reality? I mean, when there's awareness, a reality, an object exists, and consciousness alone is absolutely real. I mean, don't the two sort of work together, and aren't you both sort of saying the same thing in your own way? I think he's saying that. <laughs> but but I think I'm saying, see, the thing is, is that you have to remember the, the 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 viewpoint I'm espousing is actually adopted by all these famous people. <laughs> so they don't believe in this consciousness is you know this the first postulate, right? Because they're like hardcore academic scientists, you know, they have reputations but you don't and have stuff. To believe that to believe that awareness creates reality. Well, see, the the, the point is the point I'm trying to make is that there is this hardcore belief in objectivism, in an objective real world that has nothing to do with humans or observers or consciousness. That if you take all the conscious beings in the world and destroy them all, there's still an objective world that evolves according to the laws of physics. You see what I'm saying? And you're accusing me of metaphysics? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, continue. So this is, I mean, this is, this is, this is sort of a, a fundamental sort of ingrained belief in almost all scientists, right? That there's an objective world, you know, if I died right now, you know, everything would still be here. That, that things objectively exist, right? But that's not provable except by somebody there being there to be aware of the fact of it continuing to exist. Right, but the, the point I'm trying to make is, even though that's not provable, it's just ingrained in people's minds. Like, they take that for granted, okay? They take that for granted, and they, they work on that assumption, subconsciously even, right? That that's like the basis of science, that there is such a world that objectively exists. And the many worlds interpretation is actually restoring this very notion of objecti objectivity into physics again. From this really weird, spooky probability, this particle being some probability field, and then all of a sudden it exists, to no, it's just the whole world is nothing but objective existence everywhere you know, this particle objectively exists everywhere, if you will. And each of those worlds in which it objectively exists is as real as any other world. They're all equally real and objective. You see what I'm saying? 
they're all actually objective, just in the normal sense of how we think of things objectively existing. All of those worlds are like that, right? So it's nothing but objective worlds. So it's sort of restoring objectivity to physics. So, Damien, is there a world then, uh, according to your view, where it's just like this world, people are like doing science and everything, except that when they um, observe the sunrise every morning, instead of following a continuous path across the sky, it like jumps around? Is there a world like that? Actually, you can show that if you take in the limit of the number of observations going to infinity. So, in other words, you, what you want to do is you want to, you want to observe the sun, right? Mm-hmm. And you want to observe it, and you make a note. Okay, it's there. And then you observe it again, you make another note. And you keep doing this. And as you do that, if you, just, if you take the limit of doing that forever, what you would find is that such a world that you described has zero measure which means that it's not actually act, it's not actually realized, it's not actually experienced in that. So you're limit. saying the probability of of that world is very small, but is it actually not there, or does that world exist? Well, <laughs> all I can tell you is, see, any particular any particular sequence of events that you mm-hmm. that you want to describe, you could you can't say that that is ruled out. That that can't happen or doesn't happen. Right. So this but, world does happen. But in this limit, in this mathematical limit of... Uh, and what's that exactly? Well, that has to do with, um, with, with what happens when you look at... If you, if you look at all of the, world, all of the possible worlds, and then, and then, you know, that's an infinite number of worlds, right? Mm-hmm. And then you say, in this infinite number of sea of worlds... What's the probability of seeing such a world? And I'm telling you, in that infinite number of worlds, the probability of seeing that world is actually zero. Zero or very close to zero? It has zero measure. Absolutely zero? Zero measure is, is a, it's, it has to do with statistics. Okay? Zero measure means the measure part has to do with the fact that we're comparing it to this infinite number. We're in the context of an infinite number of measurements or an infinite number of worlds. Uh-huh. In that context of an infinite number of worlds, which is the context, because there are an infinite number of possibilities, such a world has zero, isn't actually actualized, because it has zero measure. See? Couldn't you say that's true then for any particular world that you threw? That is, all worlds have zero potential? You could say that for any particular, right. So then, so then the question is, it's sort of like uh, a so group, it's sort of actualized. like if you group if you if you sort of categorize worlds and what are those and and then the worlds that the worlds that have large measure that have appreciable measure in some cat, in some categorical sense are w- classical worlds you could say they're worlds just like this one well you mean there's a world now where 911 didn't happen sure yeah Oh, I worry then. Oh my gosh. <laughs> there's a world where 401s didn't collapse, the stock market's still rising. And there's a world where thermonuclear war happened already. Oh, well, but there's some world where everything's working out, right? Well, right. I don't worry about it anymore then. <laughs> intuitively, my sense of the um, many worlds view is that everything is happening at once, and what collapses it is awareness, is consciousness. 
But it seems like it's a, actually it's a, the many worlds view says everything is happening at once、mm-hmm. and nothing collapses it. It's just that it's like branches in a, in a tree. It's just going out, and each branch corresponds to some different world or different possibility that's actually realized. And so each branch has its own real world, and there's no collapse anywhere. It's just. So then, what it's describing is the process of awareness. What do you mean? If everything's happening at once, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It's sort of an intuitive hit. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that. that that's a good question. How come she, we don't know everything's happening at once? I mean, how come we are stuck in this world? I mean, especially if there's a world where nine eleven didn't happen. Well, it's just it's just a matter of、uh, the people in the world where nine eleven didn't happen could be t- could be asking themselves. Why are we in this world where 9/11 didn't happen? I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> they might not ask that question, but they could ask similar questions. Why did 9/12 happen? <laughs> see, so every so everyone's on the same footing in that sense, right? You can see that, right? And it's the same. It's the same kind of deal. And all these weird mystics say, you know, there's only one consciousness, and everyone's like, well, I seem to have my consciousness, and you know. Sheila has her own consciousness. She's seeing me. I'm seeing her. It seems like there's two things going on. But that's pure metaphysics because there's no way to prove there are other consciousnesses. There's, there's, you know, <laughs> well, is there there's any no way, way to, to verify that? It's just some metaphysical assumption you're bringing into your science. Is there any way to prove physics? I mean, <laughs> actually, there's a, there's an interesting there's an interesting another interesting test of of the many worlds interpretation, which is.、Uh, This is a great experiment you can do. Any and I, you know, anyone who wants to do this can can do this because it's pretty simple. All you do is you take some some process which you know has say 50% probability, like some some electron comes out of some source, and you're going to measure spin up or spin down, and it, you know half the time it's spin up and half the time it's spin down. And so you set up that apparatus, and basically you connect that up and down to a gun which is pointed at your head. And if it's up, it's going to pull the trigger, and if it's down, it's going to pull the trigger, but it's going to be empty. Empty. It's just going to click, right? Nice. <laughs> and so you just let the machine run, and what you will experience, and this is you know guaranteed, is you'll experience click, 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 click for as long as you run the experiment. Why? Because every time that you get shot in the head, well, every time that that measurement is done, the world splits into two, where one The person gets shot in the head. The other, the person's totally alive and hears a click. So that one branch is always there. So you're guaranteed to experience that. You see what I'm saying? Like you're saying, not everything is possible, but everything is. Period. Sort of like the spectrum. Right. Exactly. It's not that everything is possible. It's that everything actually does happen. Not there's just that it's possible, but everything that、is. everything that is possible is happening. It's not even about possibilities, just right. Exactly, yeah. Pre-possibilities. Right, right, right. Exactly, yeah. And it erases this whole thing about probability now. But there's a probabilistic、uh, view of things within a certain branch or a certain world. But from the point of view of the whole, there's no probability anywhere. Everything just happens. See. So God doesn't play chance. Right. So exactly, <clears throat> many worlds. God does not play dice.、Uh, seems to go with expanding universe theory too. Right. Right. 
But then but. we still experience just certain things. Yeah. I mean, like, if I'm in an accident, car accident, right? And I'm paralyzed. I'm paralyzed. I, I am not everything else. I'm not, I don't... I don't walk out of the car. I don't. I mean, but there, but there is a you in a world that's not. Right. Why am I experiencing this? You aren't just experiencing that. That's the point. You are experiencing that other one. It's just that you're not aware of it. I'm experiencing it, right? This you is not aware of that you, but that you is happening. How is this verifiable? Yeah. How do you do this? <laughs> how, do, how do you do it? What do you mean? How do you verify it? It's it's simple. All you need to do, you need to play Russian roulette. Well, you can, you can play Russian roulette, or take mushrooms. <laughs> no, but, but seriously, people have proposed doing this, doing a measurement. Which is which doesn't involve irreversible processes. See, it's the irreversible processes that in, invariably will split worlds in a way that they will never be able to overlap and interfere, and so you will never be able to know anything about that world. As long as an irreversible process happened, that irrevocably splits the worlds forever. So, what you need to do is measure something in a reversible way. We don't have fine enough technology to do this today. But 30 years from now, we may have <laughs> developed the technology to do a measurement, which is reversible. And as soon as we can do that, we can simply time reverse what we've just done. And, un and in that time reversal, that other world will, that other world which split off by the measurement will be joined again and we'll be able to verify that it existed because it. Now I just oh. have to say something here because this is, Promissory materialism. This is what they said back in classical physics. Well, in 20 years we'll be, we don't understand block, uh, block, blocks radiation, but we're going to figure it out in 20 right, years. Right. It's going to be fine. Right. <laughs> there, there's, we'll get to you in just a moment. I just want to interject here something very interesting about this point Agnieszka raised, which is that, uh, you know, there's this car accident and you said that she's, she's actually experiencing both worlds. I thought there were more two. Right, in addition to the infinite other worlds. So, now that there's, there's one awareness before the accident. Well, there's actually lots of awareness, but let's just consider this world that she's experiencing for now. And then it splits into these two worlds, one in which the accident happened, one in which it didn't. Now, what happens with this awareness when this happens? Does the awareness split, or... Is there one awareness that's now aware of two different worlds? Well, if there were... I don't know. I mean, it comes back to the question I asked Joel about, you know, these mystics say that there's one consciousness. And I'm saying, no, I've got my consciousness of you, you've got your consciousness of me. My empirical evidence of this moment is that there's more than one consciousness happening right here. So if you can answer this question, then I wait, can wait, answer wait, yours. Where are the two consciousnesses? <laughs> you lost me there. I'm seeing you. Yeah. This is consciousness, right? You're seeing me. Is that the same consciousness? Wait. What, what's this? What's this? Me seeing you stuff. Where do you see that consciousness separate from yours? Well, let me ask you. Do you see me? No. <laughs> Are you conscious? No. <laughs> is there consciousness? Yeah. 
<laughs> but how can you say where it is, or, or especially that there's two of them? Well, I mean, then why are you asking me this question, Madame <laughs> You seem to have all the answers. <laughs> yes, but you're not accepting them. That's the point. The, the splitting. See, the, the problem with the many worlds is that you, when you start to explain experience, you have to start accounting for how all these awarenesses split, and well, then there's one awareness, and then you're basically back to the metaphysics that you accused me of having. Well, look, the point is that in many worlds, awareness is, like, irrelevant. The point is that these many worlds are splitting regardless of whether there's awareness or not. Awareness is like, you know, it's like, so what? Who cares? Okay, now here's where it's we a description of the world, you see. See, this is science gone mad, you see, because it dreams up this world, this, this theory, and then it imagines that somehow all of experience and awareness is is wrapped up in it, and it's self-contained, when in fact what's happening is there's awareness and it dreams up a theory. And so it like has the whole thing inverted in this convoluted way. It's on, it <laughs> dreams up a world and then imagines that, that it explains everything. Right. Except for, of course, the awareness that dreamed it up. Right. <laughs> sure. But that, that's how, that's, you know, we find ourselves I'm in... I'm going to moderate. <laughs> Questions from the audience. Okay, there's a question here. In, um, John Bennett, in his book, uh, The Dramatic Universe, um, says that one of the problems that physicists has is that they, in the times of Ptolemy and, and Newton, uh, we were all looking for absolutes. And then when... Um, and, and everything had to be, of course, proven. But when the uh, current for the new um, physics came along, it became um, pretty obvious that the only thing that was certain was uncertainty. And that in order to, to be a physicist and study uh, the quantum theory, you almost had to take uncertainty over everything else before you could actually study the quantum theory. What's your take on that? Do you... Well, it's true that the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is sort of a cornerstone of quantum mechanics. And uh, in some sense, that's still true in the many worlds interpretation. So I have no, you know... You know, many worlds theorists have no problem with, with that uncertainty. That's a, that's, that, it's just as you said, that's sort of a basic foundational principle of the universe as we now understand it from the point of view of the new physics. You know, that whatever is going to be, does this mean that whatever you, you think you know now is not going to be so, you, you, you probably will find out that it's not so at some point as you go, as, as you become, as more things become available to you. Well, I guess another way to say that is, is, Given any starting point, you can only predict, well, in, in many worlds, you can predict all the possible worlds that will be experienced. And in, let's say, Tom's view, where there's a collapse of the wave function, you can only predict probabilities for what's going to happen, but you certainly couldn't. And the further out you go, the less and less you know about what the world's going to be like <coughs> as an actuality. What if in one of these worlds, the many worlds theory is disproved? Then what causes all the other worlds to collapse? <laughs> <laughs> well, if that were the case, then there wouldn't be any other worlds. Well, if there, if there wasn't many worlds, then why did why does the scientist bother to disprove it? Well, because it's a, it's a it's a hypothetical. 
Ah! <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the point. I mean, we start with hypotheses, then we go out and try to prove them, or disprove them, by experiments. So it's always like that. So do you guys both disagree, or are you just playing both sides? <laughs> We're playing. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't agree with any of these theories. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I wanted to ask Damien, why um, you could um, not measure Tom's jumping sun, but you could find measure for... Uh, no 9-11 in your many worlds theory. There was absolutely no room. Well, it has, to, it has to do with what's called measure, which has to do with the, the sort of the number of trajectories that have sim similar characteristics. So, for example, if you looked at all the tra possible trajectories of the world, all the possible paths, then, you know, billions and millions of them would have very similar paths would have very, lots of overlap. There'd be lots of similar looking worlds with high probability. And then you'd have all these very strange sort of non-quantum affecting effects happening in all these worlds that have, that are just single worlds by themselves out here in, in the fringes, right? Mm -hmm. So as you take the limit of measurements going to infinity, those fringe fields just basically uh, have zero, go to zero probability in terms of being actualized. Okay, so how did you put Tom in a zero probability and... Uh, it's very simple, it just has to do with uh, <laughs> quantum versus non-quantum effects. For example, um, you know, finding a world where instead of me knocking this microphone over and having it fall on the floor, all of a sudden that Zafu just jumps up onto the table, that would be a non-quantum world, you could say, right? Because all the air particles, all of a sudden, conspired to, to all move upwards, in the upwards direction, to push that pillow up. It's a very, very, very low probability of that. That's an example of the kind of world that goes to zero probability in the limit that I talked okay, about. Okay, so your probability includes your awareness of before the fact. Well, it, 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 the, the, the only thing it has to do with is whether, like in this example of the pillow lifting off a floor, it would, it would involve a huge number of particles all moving in a very correlated way where normally they'd all be moving completely independently and randomly. And that's an example of a zero-measure world that I'm talking about. Basically, we'll never see that, right? We'll never see that pillow jump up here. And so, in the same way, any classical world, anything where normal things can happen, like right now Carol could get up and go out the front door, I'd say, well, that, that's a possible world. But this pillow is jumping up here is not a classical world. So basically, what it boils down to is if it's a classical world, if it's a sort of a normal thing that could happen, then it happens. And 9-11? No, and 9-11 is within the realm of people doing things and, and doing actions and those having the effects that they want or not having the effects that they want. That's all within the world, realm of classical worlds. Or you could say normal storytelling. If you want, you know, mm -hmm. if it's all in that realm of just normal everyday things, then certainly it's happening. David, so many worlds isn't really a theory of infinite possibilities infinitely actualized, because it starts out from a pre-definition of, if you will, a base or ground reality that looks something like this. Not from a pre-definition, <clears throat> but more from a 
from a thermodynamic statistical point of view, the worlds that have probable measure that, that will actually be actualized, you're right, they look like this. So, so it's sort of, but that's sort of supposed to be built into the theory. In other words, you're supposed to be able to derive that worlds look like this. That the worlds that have appreciable measure look like this world does. That's supposed to not be, that's not a postulate that you start with. That's sort of supposed to be coming out of this decoherence principle and, and thermodynamics, basically. Yeah? I have another question. Has anybody uh, taken a, another look at, the, at Schrodinger's equation itself to... I mean, it seems like it's all based on this equation. This is like God, basically. So has anybody... I mean, and that's going to change too, right? I mean, someone may come along with a completely different equation tomorrow, or someone mm -hmm. may come in and, and insert an element into the equation that will suddenly open up a whole new can of worms. I mean, are there people working on the equation itself? Or is yeah, it just... actually people have proposed adding new terms, just like you said. Um, Nonlinear terms, actually, that might explain the collapse, for example. Right. Or something like that. Uh, the problem is none of these have been experimentally uh, verified. They either weren't able to test them, or they actually contradicted observation, or they were just not uh, not consistent. Mm -hmm. um, another point is that the Schrodinger equation is actually an approximation itself, and there are other equations that are more refined that have to do with. Uh, Quantum field theory that um, really supersede it. It's it's like a it's like a low energy approximation to other theories that we already have, which are also considered quantum mechanics. Um, but at the same time, just as in the way you can use Newton's laws to land on the moon, you can just use Schrodinger's equation to build a cell phone, or you know. Yeah. So to actually to put this into a larger scientific context, there's. There's actually good reason to believe that the Schrodinger equation and all of this will become outdated because currently there's this uh, deep problem in reconciling the two major theories in physics, namely relativity and quantum physics, and uh, they're not able to logically combine these two theories of this same world. And so there's good reason to believe that if and when they do find some theory of everything that encompasses quantum mechanics and gravity, that it will radically change everything once again. And uh, quantum <coughs> physics as we know it will be as obsolete as Newtonian physics is today. It will be valid in, as some sort of approximation, just as Newton's theory is, but uh, fundamentally the view that it has will just be seen as like, well, the flat Earth, you know, it's... You can get away with it if you're on a small area on the surface of the globe, but is it true? No, it's not. The world is round. So maybe with that we should wrap this up. And uh... wait a minute, the mystics have to have this. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. The mystics' point of view is you see, this is reality, and all these guys are talking about imagination, quite literally. They're talking about all these ideas and so forth, and they're making distinctions and projecting their distinctions onto our world of experience. So really, I think a mystic would say uh, about, let's say, quantum mechanics, you could say that uh, a mystic would probably say the, the fundamental idea of quantum mechanics, that the world exists in potentia, 
is true. That there's nothing you have to do about Schrodinger's equation. There's no real con consciousness does not collapse any wave function. Consciousness just imagines out of all this potentiality actualities, mm -hmm. and and we do that by creating distinctions. And and if you look at your own mind and your own experience, what do you experience? You experience one consciousness. You experience all sorts of phenomena arising, and you can draw different distinctions in different ways. And you just experiment with your own life, and you can see. You can look at the world in very different ways. Uh, the only requirement is that they have to be, or that we like them to be, as consistent and logical as possible. And this is going to be, this is the play of the world, and it's going to continue, and sure enough, there are going to be other scientific <laughs> theories. Everything we know today, and we're so certain of, you know, 300 years ago, they're going to look back at us and say, oh, those poor people there in the 21st century, uh, you know, how primitive they were and whatnot. So, from a mystic's point of view, one of the uh, purposes of doing this is to uh, dissuade any of you, if you are clinging to some classical materialist view of the world, to show you how wacko or how up in question <laughs> science is about what is reality. And at least, whether you're interested in mysticism or not, or whatever, to hold these ideas gingerly. When you read in the paper, science has proved this, or science has proved that, or science has disproved this, come on. This is, uh, you know, within the context of our time and place, and uh, approximations, and, you know, this is our creation, science. Not, it's not out there someplace. So, anyway, didn't they do a wonderful job? <laughs>